Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, I say it's good to be here, but it is good to be here. But, you know, I'm here every week. So, still good. Um, so, yeah, Pastor Cameron has been um, taking us through the book of Galatians this summer. Um, earlier in the summer, he started that, and then he's taking a few weeks of vacation, and then he's going to come back and finish up on the book of Galatians. And kind of in the meantime, we're going to squeeze in the next three weeks and look at the book of Ephesians together. And so we're going to get, between the book of Galatians and Ephesians, we're going to get a lot of uh, looking at uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul this summer. And I think that that's um, just following in the flow of what we've been um, looking at together as a church this year. And we've really been focusing a little bit more fully on Scripture and just getting to know the Bible a little bit more and the importance of the Bible in our lives and just getting some more understanding of different parts of the Bible. So you remember we did the Old Testament survey. We did the New Testament overview. We've done um, so far a little bit of the book of Galatians, and we're going to finish that um, later on this summer. And so as we, as a church, look through uh, the scriptures a little bit more deeply, and as we think about the importance of scripture in our lives, um, it's good to just take time to go a little bit deeper into certain parts of the Bible and to understand it a little bit more. And that's really just the purpose of the next few weeks is to just take the book of Ephesians. It's not very long. You could read it probably in 15, 20 minutes easily in, in one sitting and just, and just to understand this, this book um, a little bit more and just to get a little bit more familiar with it, just to understand it a little bit more. And so this morning we're going to start and we're going to do um, an overview of um, who is Paul, because Paul is the writer of the book of Ephesians. And so it's always good to know who is who is writing, who's the author of what we're reading and uh, going to be looking at the next uh, few weeks. And then also, more particularly, what was Paul's relationship with the church that he's writing to? the church in the city of Ephesus, and that's where the book uh, name comes from, Ephesians, written to the church in Ephesus, to the Christians there. So we'll look a little bit at uh, Paul's time in the city of Ephesus and what the city was like so that we understand coming into um, looking at the actual words and what's written in, the, in, this, in this book, what it actually means uh, in the context of its day, what it means, uh, what the city was like that these people were living in, and what particular situation Paul was writing into. And so this week, we'll do all that overview, and then we'll just start into the letter a little bit. So we'll start into it in the first chapter, and we'll begin to get a sense of what uh, Paul is going to be writing about. We'll get a sense of some of the language that he starts to use and how he phrases things. And then next week and the following week, we'll dive into it a little bit more deeply. And uh, we'll get all the way through uh, to the end of the six chapters. And so as we start, it's important, like I said, to understand uh, who Paul is, because Paul is the writer just like of Ephesians, just as he's the writer of Galatians. And some of you may know um, Paul's story a little bit. But I just wanted to back up and just make sure that we understand who Paul is because uh, understanding who Paul is is really important to understanding uh, some of the things that are going to be um, particularly in the book um, of Ephesians. And so as many of you know, um, Paul um, had a former name, Saul, which is two different ways of, of the same name, of uh, understanding the same name. And uh, so when we read the first accounts of Paul, he goes by the name Saul, but he is a zealous Jew, and he is so 
uh, zealous for his Jewish faith and his Jewish tradition, that he is persecuting Christians. And that's really the first glimpse in the New Testament that we get of Paul is of someone who is zealously attacking Christians because of his Jewish heritage and his Jewish faith. And uh, one day Paul is, uh, is going to the city of Damascus and he's going specifically to persecute Christians. He's going specifically to persecute Christians and he has this amazing um, conversion experience, this encounter with Jesus, and it's uh, recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. And so, uh, so in this account, remember when it says Saul that, that it's, it's Paul, because Paul is just a different uh, way of understanding the name. So in chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found there any who belonged to the way, and the way is simply another form of talking about the early Christians. That was the first title given to Christianity. Uh, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell off from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So that's quite quite the way to come into Christian faith, to have Jesus himself knock you off your donkey or whatever form of transportation you have at the time to blind you, to physically blind you, to set you in motion into a path of where you're not eating or drinking for three days. You're blind, you're in prayer. He, he, uh, God gives a vision to another person, somebody who you, know, you were on the way to persecute. If they'd met under earlier circumstances, Paul would have arrested Ananias. And now Ananias, stepping out in faith, calls Paul brother and prays for him so that he will receive his sight again. And this is just a very famous conversion story uh, in the New Testament. The story of Paul's dramatic conversion is just an incredible account of God coming in and just completely turning someone's life around. And so Paul's blinded by the light, led to the house. The disciple Ananias prays for him. He receives his sight. And this begins the dramatic turnaround in Paul's life. From this point, 
instead of persecuting Christians, he begins to go and preach in various cities and in various towns and villages all in this region. And he begins to preach and teach all about Jesus. And so he completely turns around his life and he completely turns around and and instead of persecuting Christians, begins to follow Jesus and calls Jesus Lord and begins to worship Jesus and, and is counted as a Christian brother. So we talked about we talked about Paul was a zealous Jew up until this point where he was blinded by the light on the journey where he heard Jesus and where he uh, was converted. I mean, how zealous was Paul? In, in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 4 to 8, he explains his Jewish heritage and then what he thinks of his Jewish heritage now that he's a Christian. And this is Paul writing elsewhere in the New Testament. And uh, verses 4 to 8 of Philippians 3, he said, If someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's about to say, this is how great I am based on my Jewish heritage, or this is how great I thought I was based on my Jewish heritage. If anybody else you know, thinks that they're in good standing with God, then they're going to have to be way better than me. But I'm pretty amazing when it comes to fulfilling all that God would have according to his Jewish heritage. So he says, you know, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. He's saying, look, there's no one better than me at being righteous. And I was zealous. And he feels like he's just fulfilling everything that God would have for him because he's fulfilling the Jewish law. But in verse 7, you see the turnaround. But whatever were gains to me, so all of that heritage, all of that Jewish past, he's like, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So that gives you an example of just how Paul went from from being... um, zealous in Judaism, zealous for, um, for that tradition and for everything he'd been raised up into. And he meets Christ dramatically on the road to Damascus and his life is turned around. He now considers all of that to be worthless. And it's interesting in Ephesians because it's a very different message in some ways than Galatians that we've been looking at earlier. Galatians is written to help explain to Jewish followers of of Christ or people who are from a Jewish background what it is to now follow Christ and how do you reconcile that Jewish background with now being a Christian. Well, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to people who did not come from a Jewish background. They came from a Gentile background or a non-Jewish background, and they were primarily Greeks. And so it puts a whole different spin on what Paul is saying and, and casts a whole different message. And it's, Paul will still say, as, we, as we'll notice later, he's, he's still going to say that Jesus is Lord, just as he does in the book of Galatians. But the way he goes about it is so different, and, and the arguments he makes for that are so different. Well, as Paul begins to go and teach and preach in various cities, uh, one of the places he stops is Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus is, uh, this, is, the, is the recipient, or they were the ones who received this letter of Ephesians, this book of Ephesians that we're, that we're looking at over the next few weeks. And so uh, what, what happened when Paul arrived in Ephesus, and what type of relationship, what type of uh, way did he know these Christians? Did he just know them in passing? Had he just heard about them? Or was he um, very familiar with who these people were that he was writing to? 
Well, the account of Paul uh, in Ephesus is actually in, found in the book of Acts a little bit earlier in the New Testament in chapter 19. And it starts off with one of the most kind of unusual um, stories uh, that you'll find in the book of Acts. And it's also a story that if you are in a Pentecostal church, a charismatic church, um, you kind of find uh, there's a lot, you put a lot of stock in this story. And um, there's a lot of theology involved but that, that we'll not mention, but... Um, basically, this story is just really fascinating when it comes to uh, receiving of the Holy Spirit and uh, conversion and things like that. So while, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Okay, so Paul's in Ephesus, and he's about to embark in his ministry there. There he finds some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? Because remember, baptism was, when Christ left, he said, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's saying, well, what baptism did you receive if you've never even heard of the Holy Spirit? And they said, John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Then he told the people to believe. John told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So that's how Paul starts his ministry in Ephesus, is meeting these these believers who had faith in Christ but had never heard of the Holy Spirit. He prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit. After that, Paul entered the synagogue, and Paul would often do this. He would go to the synagogue first, which is where the Jews would worship, and he would try to talk to the Jews first about the Christian faith and about his conversion and about the fact that Jesus was Lord. And often if the Jews were receptive, he would spend a lot of time speaking to them, but if they weren't receptive to his message, he would go elsewhere. So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So again, the way is the name for Christianity at this point. So he goes to the Jews and they pretty much reject his message. They're not interested at all. So Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul at this point has not just spoken to Jews, but he's also spoken to Greeks. And and he's speaking to everyone who lives in the city of Ephesus at the time. And Paul, uh, sorry, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So jumping now to verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So you can see that Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus continues to grow and continues to have this incredible impact in the city. You can see that there's healing, deliverance, public repentance, the growth of the church. There's even rioting. So that seems a little unusual. I think we're more familiar with, okay, so there was healing and there was deliverance. There was public repentance. The church was growing. But rioting, 
I'm not really I'm not really seeing where the rioting maybe fits in with somebody showing up in a city and beginning to proclaim and teach the gospel. Like where does the rioting fit in to ministry? I don't think I've heard uh, a missionary come back and say we started a ministry in this town and it was going well. People were being added to the church and there was a riot. I don't know if I've never heard that story. And so so something has happened here in Paul's interaction with the church in Ephesus and with the city of Ephesus that has caused this riot. And the, the only way to understand this is to understand a little more about the city of Ephesus itself at this time, to understand why Paul preaching would cause a riot. So at the time, Ephesus was one of the most prominent cities uh, in, in, the, in the world at the time. So you know how you will group like big cities like you might consider like New York, Paris, London. I mean, they're all just kind of big cities, you know, and they, you can kind of talk about them in the same breath. Well, it, it was like this for Ephesus. You could talk about Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Alexandria. Those were all the big cities um, in this region at the time. And it was a really important center for trade. Um, you can actually see some of the... Ephesus still exists today uh, in modern-day Turkey. And you can actually see some of the ruins and some of the buildings from the time that Paul would have been there. Um, but the city, even though it was a, a, tra- a, a trade hub and lots of people came through to sell and to buy goods, and it was right uh, by the Mediterranean, the main thing the city of Ephesus was known for is for a temple. And that temple was dedicated to the goddess of fertility called Artemis. And the temple wasn't any ordinary temple. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so if you imagine the city of Ephesus has this temple, people would travel from all over to visit the city, to go to the temple. The temple and the city, their identity was completely wrapped up together. And how do we know this? Well, actually, it tells us in Acts 19 that this is how the people thought of themselves and how the people thought of their city. So so kind of towards the end of the riot, the the city clerk of the city of Ephesus gets up and tries to calm everybody down and says, "Okay, you know, let's not have the riot. And he said to the crowd, this is in verse 35, fellow Ephesians. And this is remember, this is how they were thinking about themselves and their city. Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. So here you have Paul writing this letter to a city and their main identity is that they are the guardians of this temple. So imagine everybody living in the city and you said, what, you know, explain to me what, you know, what living in the city of Ephesus means. Oh, we guard, we guard the temple. You know, and a lot of people would have worked at the temple, been involved with its worship, but we guard the temple. And you can get the sense of if the temple and if the city was ever under attack, they'd go to the temple, they'd protect the temple first. Their role was to protect the temple. And so why... Why would this cause a riot? Well, many people in the city earned their livelihood off of the temple. And in particular, there were a lot of silversmiths and artists, and they'd make these you know, images of the goddess Artemis. And so they would sell statues and images. So when Paul starts preaching and lots of people start becoming Christians, that's bad for business. 
that's really bad for business. And these people started to get really mad because people are being converted. And uh, we don't need to guess that this is what they were thinking because it's also recorded in Acts 19, verses 26 and 27. So this is the silversmiths and the artists talking to themselves. And they said, you, you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So Paul is really causing some people to be upset here. He hasn't just kind of come into the city and started a small church that's gone unnoticed. He's come in and affected the city so much that the main Identity of the city is under threat. One of the main businesses in the city and areas of business and commerce and influence is under threat. And under threat so much that the silversmiths and the artists start a riot to make sure that Paul stops preaching. And so Paul does move on, but he leaves a church. He leaves a church in the city, a church that he has helped to see grow. And at the end of um, Acts chapter 20, you begin to see the depth of a relationship that Paul has built over the years that he's been in Ephesus. He spent over two years there ministering, and he ministers alongside the elders of the church in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, he says a final goodbye to them. And he's on his way, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he just knows that he won't see them again, and it causes both Paul and the elders of the church, great sorrow to know that they won't see each other anymore. And so um, in in Acts um, chapter 20 and verse 36, you get a sense of this. So Paul has just finished speaking to these elders of the church in Ephesus. And it says, when he has finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul didn't just come into town for a, l- a short period of time, start a small church, or kind of help this fledgling church grow. He came in and he spent over two years with these people, ministered alongside them. It says day and night with tears they ministered together. And in Acts chapter 20, it really outlines in detail like how Paul ministered with these people, how Paul just served them, and how he really worked alongside them to, to talk about the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And Paul really got to know this church very, very well. So when Paul finally is writing to them and and what we're about to start reading here, Paul isn't writing to a church he doesn't know. He knows them very, very well. He knows the city very, very well. And he knows exactly the situation that they're in. And so Paul isn't going to start writing about, you know, their former Jewish faith or you used to be Jewish and now you're Christian because that wasn't the case. Paul's writing to these people who were Greek and they worshipped this goddess Artemis, and then they came to faith. So you're not going to see all the language about the law. You're not going to see language about anything like that. Instead, you're going to see some different things that Paul talks about. And Paul, by the time he writes the letter to the Ephesians, is in prison, uh, most likely in Rome. And um, it's, it's a number of years after the events that we've read about. It's a number of years after he's been in the city with them. So before we go... You know, into reading chapter one, there's just one other thing that we need to to think about, and that is, uh, what's the main purpose 
of the letter? What are the major themes? And the best way to think about this is, is what would Paul have wanted to communicate to the original people he wrote to? And in order to kind of get into that frame of mind, we have to remind ourselves that Paul didn't write with you and me in mind. And I know sometimes you think, oh, I wish, I wish it wasn't the case. You know, I wish that, you know, there was some kind of like 21st century update of the Bible that spoke about, you know, technology problems and 21st century medical ethical issues or something like that, you know. But instead, the Bible, the most recent we have is, is the first century. And that was a long time ago. And so we're kind of stuck sometimes because we're like, I just don't understand what that world was like. But um, even just making small efforts to begin to understand the mindset of how people saw themselves in that day can reap huge rewards and really help us in understanding uh, the Bible. And the fact is that God has used that time in history to see the church begin and to see the church um, start in just amazing ways. And God's word, even though it was based in this first century Middle Eastern context, still um, comes to us preserved by the spirit. And uh, it still comes to us with this incredible message that um, is for our lives today. But one of the things that we'll see getting into the book of Ephesians is it'll really help to remember that um, in their world and in the city of Ephesus in particular, there was a lot going on in the spiritual realm. There was a lot going on in terms of just this whole concept of the city being the guardian of the temple of Artemis and the city being the place where people really saw themselves as protecting the temple. So as we uh, as we think about the book of of Ephesians, one thing I want to talk about is, you know, when you approach, I don't know how you approach when you start to read, you know, like the letter of Ephesians. I mean, I'm guessing that you probably open up and start at chapter one and you read, start to read through and, you know, whatever, whatever way it kind of means something to you, you know, that is, that's, that's great. And, and yet sometimes when, when people study books like this, they look for the bigger themes. They look for how did the, how did Paul, you know, tell a story or how did he flow through from chapter one to chapter two and chapter three? Like, how did he begin to piece together what he wanted to say? And uh, one of the ways that we can think about the letter of Ephesians is we can think about it as a drama, we can think about it as a drama. And I don't know if you've ever thought of a, of a letter in the New Testament as a drama before. So maybe you've been involved with theater before. Maybe you've been involved, like maybe you just like going and seeing plays or something like that. But the letter to the Ephesians can be thought of very easily as a drama. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is if you go and see a play, what is a play? A play is, is a story that's told. It's a plot line that's unfolds. And it's, it's spoken through characters, and the characters are developed throughout the play. And so someone you'll see it, you know, in act one, scene one, they might be different by the end of the play. And Ephesians really is this, is this uh, drama that tells a story. It's a drama that tells a story, and it involves many characters. And we start to see all of these things line up to tell the story. Well, if Ephesians is a story, is a story, is a drama, like what's the main plot? Like what is the main point of this drama of the letter of Ephesians? And uh, quite simply, and this is something we're going to look at over the next few weeks, 
is the drama of Ephesians tells the story of God's triumph in the world over the powers of darkness through the victory of Christ. So Ephesians, the drama of Ephesians tells us the story of God triumphing over evil through the victory of Christ. And so as we go through the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack that and see how that develops and see how that flows. And it's not just written like a like this dry account that we just read and we say, oh, that was nice for them. That was nice in that day. But Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, will say, you are part of the drama. You are part of the story and you have a part to play. You are being drawn in as some of the characters in this ongoing story because the story doesn't stop with them. And in the same way, the invitation is there for us as well, that we are drawn in through reading Ephesians, that we're drawn into this drama as well. We are called upon to be characters. We are called upon to be part of the ongoing story of God's triumph over, uh, over darkness through the victory of Christ because that story is still being told. It doesn't just deal with things on earth. It also gets into a heavenly interpretation of reality. We'll get into that more a little bit uh, next week. And it also contains um, a lot of language to do with spiritual warfare. And uh, in this church, we're a little bit more familiar with the term spiritual warfare than maybe some others. But what Ephesians is really great at doing is talking about the tension that we all kind of feel every day in our lives as we follow Christ. And the tension is, on the one hand, we know that Christ is strong. We know that he is triumphant. We know that Christ is victorious. We know that on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's the reality of sin and sickness and hardship and death and and we know that there's these two realities that we live in every day. And there's sometimes, there's some days that we really feel the strength and the victory of Christ. And there's moments and days where we feel the victory and the strength of Christ. And then there's other days and other moments where we feel as if the strength belongs to sin and to death and to sickness. And we live in, in a time where we are acknowledging that Christ has won the, the victory, but we're waiting for that final, final victory where God restores all things. And we live in this time where there's the tension between the two. And Ephesians uh, really clearly helps us to see that we do live in that time and helps us to know how to deal with that tension and how to deal with the tension between the victory of Christ that has been won for us and the final victory that is to come. And that's why you'll see a lot of talk of spiritual warfare. And the, the armor of God is a familiar, you know, if you've ever grown up as a kid in the church, you've done the armor of God stuff, you know, and you've, you know, thought about the armor of God and you've like talked about all those different things like the shield of faith well that's contained at the end of, uh, of this letter of Ephesians and so we're going to get into some more of that so we're going to just quickly read Ephesians chapter 1 and this is kind of like a taste of what's to come it's a taste of what's to come in terms of what types of words Paul is going to use his types of thoughts and so um and so in the, in the ancient world, you know, when we write a letter, does anyone even write letters anymore? If you write an email, do you put, do you, you know, we say, dear so-and-so or to, or, you know, you would put the person that you're writing to. 
at the start, and then you put your name at the end, you know, and if, you know, you have like a signature that just is always at the end of your email, you don't even think about it anymore, but your name appears last, right? That's the point. Well, in, in Paul's day, whoever sent the letter wrote their name first, so there was no doubt, you know, so imagine you're writing an email today and you write, you know, I am Graham writing to you from my office, you know, that kind of thing, which to us, you're just like, that is really weird. But that's, you know, that was just the style that they used at the time. So, so that's how Ephesians starts. It says, Paul, this is Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul is the writer and it's going to the church in Ephesus. He's just made that clear. Okay, so the next part of chapter one is just this incredible sentence. Okay, so from verses three to 14 is all one sentence. And so in the English version in your Bible, you're going to see, you know, punctuation, grammar, you know, all that stuff. In the original Greek language, this was one sentence, and it's called a doxology, which is like a, it's a praise, it's a, it's an exclamation of praise and uh, giving thanks to God. And so we're going to read it in the spirit of it being one sentence. So it's going to feel like, what, what was that again? Did we just slow down for a second? But I just want you to get a feel for how the letter of Ephesians starts. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So that's how it starts. Uh, did you get all that? <laughs> if you ever uh, want to meditate on or just get an insight into who you are in Christ, I would say that that section we just read is an excellent place to start. If you are in a place where you're doubting, who am I in Christ? What has he done for me in terms of like, who who has he made me to be? The verses we just read are just an incredible, just completely packed and loaded just set of phrases about who we are. In Christ, and uh, it just is a, it's just an introduction to how Paul is going to continue in the book of Ephesians, and just the way that he just grasps uh, what he's going to say. the The rest of chapter one, he uh, he transitions into a prayer of thanksgiving, 
and a prayer for the Ephesians. So let's read that together. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he finishes the prayer, but then he begins to explain, just in case you're in any doubt as to what that means, this is what that means. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So that brings us to the end of chapter one. And so that is an incredible, incredible prayer. That is an incredible prayer. And so as we finish today, I thought we could all just kind of receive this prayer and just kind of pray it for each other. And so let's uh, stand real quick as we finish out this morning. And so uh, what I want us to do is just to pray this prayer together. I know it's just going to take a few seconds, but as we close, we just want to kind of receive some of what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and we just want to receive it for ourselves this morning. And so as we, as we pray together, let's just really meditate for a second on, on just the greatness of, of God who's called our glorious Father. And let's just meditate and just think through what it is to receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so as we pray, just, you know, maybe this is for yourself this morning. Maybe it's for somebody that you know. Maybe it's for a friend. Maybe it's for a family member. But as we pray together this morning, I want you to really think about this for someone in particular, whether it's for yourself or whether it's for someone you know. So let's pray. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. All right. So sometimes it can be difficult to just capture all of that the first time through. So let's just do it one more time and let's just kind of soak in the moment a little bit. And let's let's ask again and let's pray again and just ask that this would be not just the experience of the Ephesian church, you know, a long time ago, but it would be our experience as a church. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen.
All right, you may be seated. All right, thanks, Grant.